This is um, an opportunity for Pastor Dave and Faye to uh, have a day off, and they certainly deserve it. So we're glad to be able to do this, but really why we want to, why we are pleased about this is that what we are talking about is giving the glory to God for what he's done. Because when you hear our testimonies, uh, there is no way that the likes of Hillary and myself should be here. It's the hand of God that's brought us here today. So we just want to share that with you. Now, we've just come back from uh, an incredible journey uh, around Israel. And on the first day in Galilee, we followed what was Jesus' first missionary journey to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And we followed that. And there's one verse. When he got to the other side, uh, a guy that was demon-possessed ran out of the hills, came down onto the beach, and confronted Jesus. And Jesus healed him. Now, this guy had no friends, no one. And uh, he begged Jesus, can I come with you? And Jesus said, no. What he said was this. Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. And that's what we want to do this morning. Just tell you about the great things that he has done, not what we have done. The, the extent of what we have done is put petrol in the car and driven here this morning. <laughs> That is our extent of it. The rest of it is down to him. And uh, I'm going to let Hillary start because, um, well, why not? Good morning, everyone. Um, yeah, this is what, uh, what Jesus has done in my life. Um, like Paul said, um, you know, we just turn up and uh, he takes over. And, um, yeah, well, I'll start really from the beginning and... Um, I was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and um, and yeah, I was born into a Christian family. My dad, uh, he um, he was a, well, he preached, and it was a, a lovely Christian family. Um, and when I um, was seven, um, my parents used to go on holiday every year. And when I was seven, they sent us off to the beach missions um over there which is what you know they did i think to get rid of us really but um and uh, when i was seven i came running back and, and told them that i'd given my life to jesus at the age of seven and i can still picture that now um I was sitting on the bed and and just you know i mean i was seven but you know there was something there but um anyway i um we came over to england and um um, I was, um, yeah, I suppose a 10 or 11 when we came over to England to live. Um, I had a very good family, family upbringing. It was very strict. My, my parents were very strict, very Christian um, upbringing, but there was no drink in the house at all. So I didn't know um, really anything about drinking. And um, as as um, I got older, we was, we still went to, to church. We still got involved with the youth because obviously my parents were very very um, you know keen that I should get married to a Christian a Christian, and um, so um, got involved with the youth. 
and um, at the age of 16 I got baptised and then um, uh, 16, 17 I left school, I did dental, I went in to do dental nursing at the dental hospital in Bristol and um, there was somebody in church that, that asked me out, this, this young guy and um, and I think he was one of these spiritual tramps, you know. I think he did all the churches, looking for women, really. But um, anyway, he asked me out, and I thought, oh, my goodness. I mean, I was quite naive. I was still playing with dolls at 14. But it was like, right, right. And then he said to me, um, do you drink? And I said, um, what, do I, what do you answer to that? Like, I was, like, sort of embarrassed. And yes, I said. But I hadn't got a clue. I hadn't got a clue about drinking. Anyway, you end up in this pub, and um, he says, what would you like to drink? And I said, um, the first thing that came into my head was sherry, because in those days, sherry was the drink, right? It was the, you know. And so I just said, I'll have a sherry, please. So anyway, he came back with this sherry, and um, I drank it. Now, I was a very, very shy person, um, I forgot to say that really in upbringing, uh, my upbringing. I was very quiet, very shy, very scared, full of fear. And um, so this was a big thing to go out with, with. His name was Andy, to go out with Andy. It was a big thing. Anyway, I um, brought the sherry to me and I put it to my lips and I drank it. And I thought, wow, wow. Now, I should have had a big label on my head saying, beware of this lady, because I suddenly thought, well, if this drink, one drink, you know, if this can make my mouth move and me feel like this, what's another one going to do? So really, that was the beginning of my um, obsession, shall I say. I started to obsess about that drink, that first drink and how it made me feel. It made me feel so different. I wasn't scared, I wasn't full of fear. I felt I could, well, you know, that was it. I could run the world. So anyway, um, let me see, fast forward a little bit more. I, I married this guy and uh, we got married and uh, we, um, we had children. We had four children together and I'm saying there was ups and downs and, uh, and a lot of it was, was good but um, you see that obsession of having that first drink started something off in me, it was a craving, it was something that I always had there and I always wanted more, I wanted to drink more because it made me feel good and you see what happened was I started to rely on that drink, that drink it became a crutch, and uh, even even though we were involved in the church, because by the, by this time we were both involved in a church, and um, and the children went to church, and uh, a, um, a nice Christian family, as we as people would look upon us, but you see deep down, that obsession was there, that craving was there, and I needed that drink. I needed it more and more. And it came to um, a point where I couldn't do anything. I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't... Uh, I always had to have a drink in my handbag. If I went, the, when the, as the kids, kids got a bit older, and I couldn't face 
anything without a drink inside me to the extent that um, I became a different person when I was drinking. I didn't want to be that person. You know, I thought I was a really lovely, nice person. I didn't want to be that person. But you see, as, in, as soon as I put that drink inside me, I became something else or somebody else. Um, my children suffered. I didn't realize how much they suffered, but they did. Um, when they started school, they obviously had made friends. And uh, they got to um, a place where they didn't even want to invite their friends home because they said, I didn't know how mummy you would be, whether you'd be nice or whether you'd be angry or, um, or how you would be. Now, you see, this drink was started to take over. It started to take over my life. I didn't know that. I, didn't, I really thought that I was in control. But the fact was, I wasn't in control. Now, I was, I was going to church, and I was praying, and, um, and I was saying, God, you know, and I was feeling, um, I was feeling, I got to a stage where I just started to hate the person I was. I started to dread the days ahead. Now, by this point, I woke up in the morning and with the shakes, and I knew that if I didn't have a drink when I woke up, I'm not going to get through the day. So I see, I started, I went downstairs. And um, now, who has orange juice in the morning? You know, a lot of people have orange juice. But if you put vodka in it, you know, you start to say to yourself, well, it's only orange juice. But it wasn't only orange juice. It was vodka and orange juice. Now, that, now, a lot of the time, I would get that drink down me and I would feel fine. Other times I'd start heaving and... I was like on my knees heaving and then, I mean, this is insanity because as soon as I started heaving, I thought I've got to get that drink down me to feel normal. And then I thought to myself, but this is not normal. I didn't feel normal. I got to a point where I was desperate. I got to a point where um, I, there I had four children and life was hell. Life was hell. Um, then um, one night, my husband came home. Now, at this point, I didn't say that he was also drinking heavily. And so sometimes, if he did come home from work, he was working in Bath, he'd come home and he'd start a, we'd both start a row. And I was actually thinking, actually, I'm going to start this row because then he'll say, oh, I've had enough and I'm walking out. So he would go. And then I, I was, you know, typical um, selfish. I could drink. Then he wasn't around, so I could drink. I'd get my children to bed, and I could drink. And my parents used to say to me, gosh, your children are so well-behaved. But the fact was, it wasn't that. It was the fact that I was a very selfish, selfish person and just wanted to drink. The, alcohol, the alcoholic in me was a very selfish person. So anyway, um, I got to a point where um, my husband... Um, came home one night and said he was leaving me, he'd find somebody else. So I was like, absolutely. What? You know, and the fact was, I mean, we were both drinking and we were both going our separate ways. But you see, the pride and ego in me was like, how can you do this to me? And then somebody said to me, how can he leave you with four children? So I turned around and I said, how can you leave me with four children? And um, so that was, um, a com that was a complete self-pity trip that I went on then. And um, for two years, I went on this self-pity trip of, how can you leave me with four children? But, you know, 
that, that got me to a place, that two years got me to a place where I just cried out to God. Now, at this point, in that two years, I'd ended up in hospital. I'd taken an overdose. I was rushed in. I decided I didn't want to live, and I decided that I'd, I'd drunk a, um, a glass of, um, of, but I think it was either vodka or, or whiskey, and I'd popped a bottle of pills. Um, I didn't want to live. I didn't want to live. And I ended up in hospital. I had to get um, the doctors to... Um, pump me out, and your tubes and everything. And then I was put in a, a bed and I, on a ward and I'm lying in this bed and I'm thinking, why is everybody not coming to see me and bringing me flowers? Now, the fact was that I had just tried to take my life and the nurses were really busy and they didn't want to know, which is quite understandable, which is quite understandable. So in the end, uh, I left that hospital and they said, if you drink again, you're going to die. But I didn't care. I just needed that drink. I could not get through a day or a night or even an hour without the drink inside me. Anyway, eventually, um, I did get to a place. And it was in September 1984. And um, I was playing a game. It was the start of school term. And for me, it, it was like a, a new year. And I'd, I just couldn't do it any longer. Now, you see, I'd cried out to God many times, but he knew that I didn't mean it. You see, God knows. Jesus knows us. He knows every hair that's on, our, up in my, on my head. He knows every hair that Paul hasn't got <laughs> on our heads. And do you know, he knew that night when I'd cried out to God and I totally surrendered. I said, I cannot do this anymore. And I put my hand up and I got on my knees and... That was the start of my recovery. That was the start of my recovery. I had four children. I was a single parent. But I knew, I knew at that particular point I couldn't drink anymore. I'd had enough. I was sick of being sick. So when I cried out to God, I ended up in a treatment center. Then um, I, I joined an organization that could help me to change help me. And you see, it's not all about putting down the drink. It's not all about that. You see, when I stopped drinking, I didn't know anything. I needed to start afresh. I needed to change. I had so many, so many issues. I had anger issues, resentments, everything. And I needed a, a program. And so I joined, I started on a 12-step program that I needed to look at myself and learn how to live again. And that's what I did. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. But, you know, God was with me every step of the way. Every step of the way. He had a plan and a purpose for my life. I got divorced. I then, um, and at the time, my parents were Christians. And they were praying that I would get back with my husband again. Now, you see, this is something that, as Christians, we've got to be so careful about. Because, you see... They said to me, but you're married. I said, no, I mean, I'm divorced, but you will get back together with, with him. You will get back with him. But you know, that wasn't God's plan. That was not God's plan. And the fact is, you know, God has a plan for us. And we turn around and we say, you know, oh, well, you know, that, that's going to happen. But, you know, if we don't pray God's will, if we don't pray God's will, you know, and God's will was that I would meet 
Paul. God's will was that I would meet Paul. And that's what, you know, and it wasn't. My ex-husband never got well. He was an alcoholic. He never got well. He died. Um, last year, he died. And um, he, um, he had a massive stroke. He was paralyzed. He was blind in one eye. And he ended up six years in a home where he couldn't move. And he was on a bed. Um, and he never got well. Now, you see, God's will was that I marry Paul. And, you know... It was amazing because, you know, when I stopped drinking, I thought my life had finished. I thought, this is it. How can I live a life without drinking? How can I live a life without drinking? I don't know how much time I've got left. Am I all right? <laughs> and, um, and it was scary. It was so scary because, you see, that had always been my life. I'd carried it everywhere with me. I needed that booze to give me the confidence to get through life. But now I was, like, on my own. And do you know what? As I grew, as I started to change, as I started to rely on God and depend on him more and more every day, and, and as I got closer to him and started to say, God, today, it's not my will, it's yours. Help me through today. Help me through today. And I started to go to this, um, this fellowship, and I started to share, and I started to, to speak to other recovering alcoholics that wanted to get well. This is how I started to change. And my life's been incredible. My life is now incredible. You know, it's, um, it, it's just changed so much, you know, and that is through what Jesus has done in my life. I mean, there I was, this very shy. I'm still very quiet. Well, I don't know about being quiet, but I'm just full of fear sometimes. I'm not saying I'm not. Um, but what I try and do is I try and feel the fear and just go with it. Because, you know, I know that God gives me the, the words to say and, um, you know, and do. Um, so, uh, you know, um, today Paul and I are both involved in this 12-step um, program. And, uh, and it's, it's just changed our lives. And we can help other people through, through this. Um, we have got so many grandchildren, children... You know, our sons come from Australia, and, you know, we have been blessed. We have been blessed, absolutely. We've been coming to this church now for... 29 years. 29 years. We live in England, and we come over. And it's where we are, it's where we, we are meant to be. This is our life. This is our church family. You are all our church family. And um, do you know what? And I look back, and I think, right, yeah, I'm an alcoholic, actually I'm a recovering alcoholic but you know I wouldn't be the person that I am today if I hadn't gone through what I've gone through you know I mean I drove the car with my children in the car and I was drunk but you see I'm not going to beat myself up you know alcoholism is an illness it's not that I'm a bad person if I if somebody said to me you're a diabetic I would accept it so I'm an alcoholic I accept it but there is a solution and I can get well one day at a time. And you know, the wonderful thing about life today is we've only got 24 hours. That's all we've got to enjoy every day. And um, I think I better pass it on to Paul because I'll probably go on and on now. But. Every, every time I hear Hillary's story, uh, I, I, I thank the Lord for giving me a wife like this. 
um, you know, because we are so similar, but so different. And that's what makes, I think, probably a vibrant marriage. Sometimes can be quite volatile, but that is the personalities that we are. And we, we blend with each other. And uh, we do have an amazing life, really amazing life. I mean, I'm going to say, it's Hillary's birthday today. And Jenny's. And Jenny's, yeah. Now, my wife is 73. Now, I know you shouldn't say a woman's age, but isn't she fab for 73? Now, I can assure you, she wouldn't have looked like that if she'd have carried on drinking and popping pills. So, what you see is a miracle. And uh, I'm very grateful that this church has allowed Hillary and myself to be part of this and to share what God's done. So, it's, it's over to me. And uh, some of you have heard our testimonies before. And... Uh, you're thinking, well, what's so special? There's nothing special about us. There's special about him. Now, I was brought up in a Christian family just like Hillary. There is a, there is a photo on the screen somewhere. you are. This is my great-grandparents who were with William Booth in the start of the Salvation Army back in the 1880s. And uh, this was my background. That's my father, the little lad on the left-hand side. And uh, I was brought up with this idea, not an idea, but a belief of the illness of drink. And I th as I grew, I thought, well, it's a bit of an old-fashioned thing, isn't it? You know, when are they going to grow up into, you know, 20th century thinking? But you see, I hadn't seen what William and Catherine Booth saw in the West End. The destruction of families and lives through alcoholism, through uh, abuse, through all kinds of awful things. And that is why they had within their, their teaching... Avoid the drink. Now, that is fine for them, but not for Paul. He is special and different. You know, he, he's, he's above you lot. <laughs> That's the kind of thinking. So I was brought up in this Salvation Army kind of environment. I played in the band. Uh, I started off playing the tenor horn. Then I knocked my teeth out and then finished up playing the drum. And uh, that had been my life. Music had been my life, and it still is. I love music. It does something to my heart and my spirit like nothing else. And I'm very grateful for that gift of music. And at the age of 16, I left school, and I joined the Army School of Music in London. And uh, I was doing all the ceremonial stuff where you will see the changing of the guard and tro trooping of the color next week while I was doing all of that. And uh, it was very exciting stuff. And I had never drunk, never, never touched the stuff, never. And I decided to come out of the army, and I finish up in a place called the Director General 
in Shooter's Hill in Woolwich, all right? And the guys that I'm with, I'm about to leave the army. They say, right, Paul, you can't leave without saying a farewell. So we go to this pub. I had never drank in my life. Never touched a glass, never seen a glass or anything. And they said, what are you going to have? And I said, the big drinker, I'll have a Coke. No, you can't have a Coke. Well, they said, all right, well, what do you suggest? And they said, well, have a lager and lime. Well, I didn't know what a lager and lime. It looked like a glass of urine to me, you know. Um, but they said, have, have this, this, um, this lager. So I drank this, I, I drank this, um, this liquid, and it was like a hand grenade going off inside. It was the most incredible experience I'd had in my life. I thought, this is wonderful. Now, the thing is, for any of you electricians or builders or whatever, you, would you know what an RCD switch is? You know, is when the circuit breaks, the, the, the switch, and it cuts all the circuit out. Well, I haven't got one of those. When I drink, I drink. And I don't know how to stop. I do not know. People say, why don't you behave yourself, Paul? I don't know how to do it. I do not know how to do it. Now, see, what happened with me when I started to drink in, just like Hillary, is that I could go out one night and I would say to my wife, um, I'll be back at nine o'clock, and I meant it, but turned up the next day. You know, full of promises, but the action didn't line up with what I said. So really what was happening, the, the, the drink was, in, was turning me into a compulsive liar. If my lips were moving, I was lying. And you couldn't believe a word that I said. You could not. I would, my, my wife would say to me, you've been drinking, haven't you? No. No, I haven't at all, you know, and then I would put it back on her. What do you mean blaming me for this? And just like Hillary, I would then instigate a row and off I'd be doing the four minute mile down to the pub. Now, these are all kinds of things of a behavior that started to uh, build up in me. I said I was a liar. Um, I was a thief. And I did it. I did it. Fiddling VAT, not paying full amounts for materials because I had a shop fitting business. I drive the lorry into the builder's yard, fill it up with 50 sheets of plywood and pay for 25 and give the guy a backhander. So I was a thief. I was an adulterer. Um, all because I was drinking, I wasn't brought up for this kind of thing. And uh, I was selfish self-centered, inconsiderate, thoughtless. And you see, that is part of the character of Paul's humanity. And these are the kind of things I've constantly got to be working on. I mean, Hillary mentioned about that word ego. Well, I've got an ego the size of the Empire State Building. I know that. You know that. You know that. God knows that. But he's changing me from the inside out. And, and I know that, I know. And that is the great thing about recovering from drinking. I now know who I am because I know him. And I've got to move on to uh, 
one particular day, I'd, I'd hired this restaurant. Now, oh, in the meantime, oh, well, it doesn't matter about the family, but all of my family were, f were praying for this lunatic that they had in their family called Paul. I, what I did to my mum, oh, I can't wait to see her in heaven and put my arms around her and say I'm sorry for what I did. But it won't be like that. Our focus will be on him. You know, the past will be gone. So, but the point is, is that what I put that woman through was hell. It was hell. She was a wonderful woman. She, would, she went to the Salvation Army every day. She was in the Songsters. Ah, oh, what an amazing woman. What, a, what, what an introduction to life she gave me. And what did I do? I squandered it. I squandered it. And she prayed. All the family were praying for me. Well, what's the lunatic doing today? Um, well, I can't tell you some of the stories, and I don't want to. But the point was, I had this business this shot fitting business, it was doing very well, thank you very much. And I hired this restaurant in Clifton, because we live in Bristol, you see. We hired this restaurant, big flash, you know, big grandiose kind of thing. All the wine you wanted, everything. And I had all the employees and all the wives there, all wonderful setting. And I went off on one. Oh, I went off on one. It was awful. And I can remember up until about half past nine, and I booked a cab for two, and I went into a blackout, and I cannot remember that what went on from half past nine till two, and I went into work the following morning, and my youngest apprentice, Andrew, was there, and I could see him walking down the corridor to my office. He was there the night before. And he walked into my office. Remember, he's the youngest, the youngest apprentice, and I'm the big I am. And he said to me, Paul, we, you know, we Christian name. He said, Paul, do you remember what you did last night? Oh, dear, oh, dear. And I had, a ch I had three choices. I could either say, get out of my office, or I could, I could try and laugh it off and say, oh, wasn't it fun, or oh, whatever. Or I could tell the truth and say, I can't remember. And I said to him, I can't remember. And he looked at me and sniggered. And it was like he'd stuck a knife in me. He went out of the office. I left the office, got in my car. I could not go on living like this anymore. The shame, the guilt, the remorse, the terror. Uh, was awful. My liver had packed up. My eyes had gone yellow. I had bloomed up to 16 stone. Um, I was waking up in the morning full of fear. I was having a love affair with my pillow because I would hold it with fear of getting out of bed and starting the day. Uh, I would have to go into work and I, all I could think about was as soon as 12 o'clock comes I can be over in that pub and the shakes would shot stop and I would be in charge again. And what happened was I thought I cannot go on living like this. And then something quite miraculous happened. And I want to show you a picture. There's a, here you are. The Eldon Hotel house is a pub in Clifton. Something quite special took place here. Or you could call it a spiritual experience. That left-hand window, 
I sat in that window contemplating killing myself because the Clifton Suspension Bridge was just up the road from here. And I sat there and I thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I, heard, I just sort of sensed hopelessness, absolute hopelessness. And uh, there was something going on inside me. I thought, I cannot live like this. I cannot live with this fear, terrified of the day, terrified of everything. And the way that I deal with that is shout at everybody. I was the most angry person you could ever wish to come along. Anyway, cut a long story short, because I left that pub. I obviously didn't kill myself because we're here today. I went home and I walked into the house and I said to my wife, I said, what am I gonna do about my drinking? And she put a, handed a, put a four letter word on the end of the sentence and said, I don't care took the kids and left. And I was in the house on my own and I threw myself on the settee and I cried like a baby. I thought, what am I gonna do? And I heard this voice and it said, uh, pick up the book, telephone book. And I picked up this telephone book and it was like, this was, back, this was 1977, all right? There were yellow pages, remember yellow pages? Well, page seven was all the self-help organizations. And it was like, I opened it, flicked it open. There was this organization, the same one that Hillary talked about. You know, uh, it, it, was, it, was, uh, it was started by, by two men called Bob Smith and Bill Wilson. And um, it was as though somebody had got a highlighter and put it under this name, under this number. And I rang it. And uh, the guy said to me, he said, do you think you're an alcoholic? And I thought, what a stupid question. I wouldn't have rung if I'd have known that. And anyway, cut a long story short, he said, I'll send you someone to have a chat with you. And then the knock on the door came, and it was this guy that looked like Clark Gable. He had a pencil moustache, thick, swept back hair. He had a tweed jacket on, tall, distinguished, and he had a brand new jag. I thought, they've obviously chosen the right guy to send for me. And he started to tell me his story about how he drank and couldn't stop. And I thought, this is my man. And then he, he took me to a group where these um, people were meeting. And there was a guy there. And he'd been sleeping rough on a bomb site in Glasgow. And he was doing what was called skippering. Now, I don't know whether you've ever heard of the word skippering, but it's sleeping rough. And he said, I was on this bomb site in Glasgow with his drinking mates, and they had just wrung this chicken's neck and ate it raw. Now, I did not identify with that, but what he did say after, he said, I cannot go on drinking, I cannot go on living like this anymore. And I heard it. I heard what I needed to hear. Paul, you don't have to go on like this anymore. And the guy that took me there, he said, Paul, do you think you can stay sober tonight? And I thought, this is a challenge. I thought, I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go. And he said, I'll ring you next morning. That was a Sunday morning, eight o'clock. And the phone goes at eight o'clock. And he said, Paul, did you have a drink last night? And I said, no. 
He said, there you are. That's what you've got to do a day at a time. Don't drink. Now, fast forward in, I was full of resentment, just like Hillary said, full of resentment, full of anger, full of all these kind of emotions that an alcoholic, untreated alcoholism, anti-God person would have. All right? And I got to a stage of about a year, and I thought, if something doesn't happen, I reckon I'm going to drink again. And this guy said to me, said, Paul, you need to do something. And what he suggested was that I wrote a list down of all the people that I'd harmed, all the resentments that I had, all the anger feelings that I had towards various organizations and people. And you got honest. And I wrote all these things down, all of these things down of my drinking past, the things that were in my head, I got on paper and he said, right. Um, he said, there's a guy that I know in a church in Bristol called Pippin Jay. And he said, we'll go along to him and you read all this stuff out to this guy in this church. Now this wasn't what I wanted to do. I had no intention of going into a church. You know, all you nice Christians used to infuriate me. You did, you used to irritate me because you were so nice. You were so nice. Why can't you be normal like me, horrible? <laughs> do, you, do you see the madness, how to think it was? Anyway, he, this guy, John. Now, John was a manic depressive. He'd been in some mental hospital 34 times, so I've got a good circle of friends, right? Now, John, in one of his good moods, in his good time, took me to this church. And I went into this room with this guy called Rolf. And I brought out this paper, and I started to read all these things that I felt about, the things that I did, the thoughts, the resentment I had towards my ex-wife, uh, all these kind of things. And I, re I got all that, and I realized, Paul, you are an adulterer. You are selfish. You are a thief. You are irresponsible. You are unreliable. All these kind of things. And at the end, he said to me, uh, after I'd finished reading this out, he said, uh, how'd you feel? And I said, I feel empty. So with that, he whipped out of his tweed jacket this card. And on this card was a prayer. Now he said, what I want you to do is to read out this prayer. Now I was not expecting this. I was not expecting this at all. I wanted to get out there. Anyway, he handed me this prayer. And this is what the prayer said. It says, Dear Lord Jesus, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I ask you now to come in my life and change me. I can no longer live like this. I don't want to live like this. I know that you died on the cross for me to set me free. And I want to be free. So I ask you now to come into my life and save me. Bam! I got hit by fork lightning. This heat hit my head and it went down through my body to my feet. I thought, what has just happened to me? And he looked at me, he said, you've just asked Jesus into your life. A simple prayer, a simple prayer. I hadn't planned on it. And he said, what I want you to do is that go outside and tell the first person you see 
that you've asked Jesus into your life. I open the door and there he is, big manic depressive John. And he said to me, he said, Paul, what's happened to you? And I said, John, I've asked Jesus into my life and I just don't know what's happened. And from that moment on, things changed. Uh, various aspects in my life went on and on. Uh, and I started to get well, just like Hillary did. And I found myself, I had this reluctance. See, an alcoholic doesn't want to be told what to do. He's a rebel. You know, I want to do what I want to do with who I want to do it when I want to do it. That's, that's the nature of the selfish alcoholic. So when these people said to me, Paul, it'd be really quite a good idea if you found a church. Now, I got an aversion to anything that says, Paul, you need to be there at half past 10 on a Sunday morning. I react to it. I don't want to be told what to do. Because you see, I was undisciplined. I was still self-centered. But anyway, I went to a church uh, in Clifton and over a period of time, there was this rather nice lady there uh, with, a, with four children. And I used to go along with my son, Louis, and uh, we got to know each other. And it was Hillary. It was Hillary. And one day, we were at what was called uh, a full gospel businessmen's fellowship, whether you've heard of that. And this happened to me, first of all. Somebody prayed for me, and I got baptized in the Holy Spirit and started to speak in tongues. And I thought, I'm going mad. I'm going mad. And I thought, this is hype. This is hype. This. And I said, to, I said, Lord, if this really is you, show yourself. And I was in bed that night, and I was just about to go off to sleep. I can remember it's clear. And the tongues just shot out of my mouth. And I thought, this is real. This is real. And I, something was going on. There was a, there was a, the Holy Spirit was in me and revealing himself to me. A few months after, Hillary goes along and bam, the same thing happens to her. So the both of us are, are being baptized in the Holy Spirit and we find ourselves in King's Church in Newport. Now, why do we finish in Newport? You know, I don't want to live in Newport. Hillary doesn't want to live in Newport. Um, we don't live in Newport. But you see, God wants us here for whatever reason. And uh, see, um, how can I explain this? The things that we've been through are not the usual kind of stuff that you hear in a, a Sunday morning service, are they? You know, we either get a preach or an ex exposition of, the, the, of a scripture or whatever, and suddenly you get these two guys or men, woman, husband and wife from the congregation sitting up here on bar stools. That's a change, isn't it? <laughs> on bar stools. <laughs> isn't it funny? You can, it just takes you back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pint the cider, please. Carl, amazing, isn't that amazing? So really what we're saying is that what, what has happened to us, as mad as we were, 
God chose us for this morning because we believe that what our testimonies will help someone here. You don't have to wake up in the morning full of fear. You don't. You don't have to be anxious of the day ahead. What about this? What about that? Especially if you listen to the news. Is he going to leave me? Is she going to leave me? Is their health going to be all right? Am I going to manage when I retire? Why is it I'm having these problems? Why? It doesn't have to be like this. You see, for, for us, once we acknowledged all of those and we brought them to Jesus, uh, we trusted him. You say, uh, I believe he can, he will, so I think I'll let him. And I think that's, that's the truth. And I've got one scripture that I want to finish on. Where is it? Hang on, bear with. You want to know the power of, you want to know the power of the word of God? Psalm 18:4 to 6. The ropes of death entangled me. Floods of destruction swept over me. The grave wrapped its rope around me. Death laid a trap in my path. But in my distress, I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I prayed to my God for help. He heard me from his sanctuary. My cry to him reached his ears. And that's what happened. So what I'm going to do is the, the greatest gift, you know, is this freedom, a new life. And it, it comes in a simple form of surrender and repentance of Jesus. Now, I, I, I said the prayer that I said. But if any of you here want to change your life just give up just give up and surrender um, it's, a, it's a simple act that you need him there's an old chorus do you remember I need thee oh I need thee every hour I need thee oh save me now my saviour I come to thee and that's what he wants he doesn't want any of you going through the trauma of fear, anxiety, concern, or whatever. Now, you may be Christians. You may have ordered, but it's a good thing to acknowledge these things and come to him. So I'm going to repeat this prayer, um, maybe in a, in a different form. And uh, if you want to say it in your heart, uh, do. And I'm not even going to close my eyes because I like looking at you. You're such a lovely bunch of people. You really are. You know, from up here, the view that we have is far better than the view that you have. You know? Because, you know, we can tell. We can tell you're listening. Be Do you know why I know you're listening? Because you love us. Now, that is not an ego thing. We know you love us. And we love you because he loves us. So, I'm going to say this prayer. And just say it in your heart. Dear Lord Jesus, I'm anxious, 
I'm worried, I'm concerned, I'm fearful about my future, and I find it difficult trusting you. I want to trust you because I believe in you, but I ask you, Holy Spirit, to come and give me peace that the world cannot give. I ask you come into my life and give me this freedom that only you can give. I ask this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if any of you said that, Hillary and myself will be down at the edge of the stage after. If you want to come and chat, please do. But remember today, God is an amazing God. Absolutely amazing. He said, there's a, there's a bit in the book from this fellowship that, uh, that Hillary and myself belong to. It says, uh, for the most satisfactory years of your existence lie ahead. What a thought. The most satisfactory years of your life lie ahead. And we can say that because we honor him. And the scripture that we both, we, we both live on, we both live on this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 says, For no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor mind conceived what God has prepared for those that love him. Amen. Amen.